Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Ghostly Gallery podcast. It's a place where we'll explore the world of horror in film, in books, and in popular culture. Hello, everybody. My name is Bruce Markison, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Tracy Asteria. Uh, we are going to be delving into the world of horror. Uh, we'll be featuring uh, interviews. We'll look at uh, movies, books, uh, all sorts of areas where horror intersects with popular culture. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background about myself, uh, I've written the book, Hosted Horror on Television, the films and faces of shock theater, creature features, and chiller theater. And I also run the Facebook page, The Ghostly Gallery, the same name as this new podcast. And I'm very glad to do a welcome to the program, Tracy Asteria. Uh, Tracy has been a host of the Late Late Horror Show. Uh, she also is a paranormal investigator in Nova Scotia and generally a fan of horror and sci-fi, as am I. Tracy, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Bruce. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Tracy, I wanted to begin by kind of giving each of us a chance to introduce ourselves and talk about how we became fans of horror, uh, how it all started. Uh, I'm going to let you begin by giving us a little bit of your background, your story. How did interest in horror begin for you? Okay. Well, as you as you mentioned, I'm from Nova Scotia, and um, I have a corporate job by day, but I am a paranormal investigator on the side, and I've always been a huge fan of science fiction and the horror genres. So. I'll tell you a little story about how I actually got interested in horror. So this goes back to 1981 when the release of An American Werewolf in London premiered. And that was my very first experience with the horror genre. And that was the first movie I had ever seen. And I was only about eight or nine years old. My parents had taken me to see this and it scared my socks off. But I was hooked from that moment when I saw that movie on the big screen. It was it was scary. I had nightmares, but it was such a thrill for me. You picked a great movie to start. <laughs> I know, right? It was fantastic. And for my very first exposure, I definitely don't regret it. And at the age of eight or nine, it was amazing. 1981 was a great year, coincidentally, for werewolf films. There were no fewer than three that came out. Probably the most critically acclaimed, the one you mentioned, mm -hmm. American Werewolf in London. Uh, one of my personal favorites, The Howling with Dee Wallace, came out. Yeah. And then uh, Wolfen, which is somewhat overlooked, somewhat underrated, but also came out that year. Uh, so that turned out to be uh, an incredible year for the werewolf genre. Uh, so that's how you begun. Yes. Uh, you began rather with your interest in horror. Um, as for me, it's something that uh, goes back a little bit further. I think I'm a little bit older than you. That's um, a guess that I'm going to make here. We may confirm that at a future point in time. It was early 1970s. Actually, it was 1972. And my parents had bought me these books uh, that had Alfred Hitchcock's name attached to them. The first book was called Alfred Hitchcock's Haunted Houseful. The second book was called Alfred Hitchcock's Ghostly Gallery. And these were slightly oversized books. They were hardcover. They consisted mostly of ghost stories. Uh, none of them had been written by Hitchcock. He simply attached his name to the project. Uh, and I'm sure that helped boost sales. But uh, there were writers uh, that he knew, people like Robert Arthur. There were other writers uh, who probably had been deceased at that point. Uh, but he was able to put together this compilation of ghost stories, uh, ostensibly for young adults. Uh, and I, I wasn't really a young adult at that point. Mm -hmm. I was a child. I was about seven, but I did like to read. And I was fascinated by those two books. I absolutely loved them. I also loved the photography, uh, which was absolutely outstanding. There was great sketch drawings throughout uh, the book. Each story had at least one or two of these drawings. And the combination of the writing and the drawings that really got me hooked. Mm -hmm. And from there, I started watching Chiller Theater, which was one of many late night horror showcases going on in the country at the time. 
Now, I grew up in Yonkers, New York. I actually grew up on the border of Yonkers in a very small town called Bronxville. Mm-hmm. So we were in the New York City market and we had these um, we had the access to WPIX television, which was one of the syndicated stations. So Saturday nights, usually after the Yankee game, and coincidentally, I'm a big baseball fan. That's my other area of interest. So after the Yankee game was over on a Saturday night, they would switch over to Chiller Theater, and I would stay up as long as I could. Many times I fell asleep halfway through (laughs) the film, but I would enjoy watching uh, these late-night horror movies, some from the 50s and 60s. Some of them were the classics from the 30s and early 40s. And that's kind of the second stage for my interest in horror. So it it started with the books, the Alfred Hitchcock named books, Mm -hmm. and then it moved on to the films. And it's really just uh, grown ever since. I'm curious, Tracy, where you lived, did you have a horror host or a horror showcase Mm -hmm. that you watched? We had the Chiller Theater, which at the time did not have a host. How about where you were growing up? Did you have a particular late night show that you like to watch? Well, there was nothing like that that we could access here when I was growing up, like nothing like the Chiller Theater or anything like that, which is really unfortunate. But um, I would say that there was just kind of like random like TV movies and stuff like that, that I would kind of pick up late night while I was babysitting. So it would be on the older channels and it would be the old, old Abbott and Costello kind of movies and stuff like that. So Mm. those, those would be the things that I would kind of watch late at night while I was out babysitting and stuff, but no real. Did you have a, did you have a favorite Abbott and Costello movie? Oh my goodness. Not a favorite. I think it was mostly just like anything that I could grab and watch because I'll be honest, I don't think I actually finished many of those movies just because they were on so late at night. <laughs> but it it is on my list to go back and start watching like all of the Abbott and Costello movies and go back and watch like Vincent Price movies, the, mm-hmm. those are actually on my watch list. So things I couldn't do when I was a child, I can do now. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned the Abbott and Costello films because WPIX, mm-hmm. the same station that carried Chiller Theater, used to have a, kind of a late Sunday morning Abbott and Costello feature. And not all of them were their Meet the Monster films, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them were. You know, there was Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of course, my favorite was the 1948 movie Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which is one of my probably top five to top ten films of all time. So those those Mm -hmm. movies were on late morning into the early afternoon. Again, usually before Yankee baseball in the (laughs) afternoon. So again, you had the horror baseball connection, but this time the horror came first, the baseball came later, but it was all at a reasonable hour. Mm -hmm. So I was able to watch uh, those films all the way through. So uh, Abbott and Costello for me was a huge part of growing up. Right. And I know some people don't really consider those true horror films. I think those people are wrong. I think they are horror films. They are comedy. That's a wonderful blend of the two genres. Yes. But Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's absolutely a horror film, and uh, I will I will fight to the <laughs> death anybody who contends otherwise. And perhaps on a future show, we'll talk more about uh, Abbott and Costello and that whole uh, phenomenon. There's really nothing like it. Oh, absolutely. In, uh, in today's entertainment world. Well, one of the things that we want to do on this program. Uh, is we want to kind of set some of the goals for what the future will hold for the Ghostly Gallery podcast, what we would like to do. I think we're trying to do something maybe a little bit different from some of the other programs Mm -hmm. that you hear out there. And this is not meant to criticize them or belittle them in any way. A lot of horror podcasts tend to be, you know, two guys or a guy and a girl talking about horror, doing so in a very informal way. We are going to do that a little bit, and we're certainly doing that on this inaugural episode, Mm -hmm. but we're also going to be featuring a lot of interviews uh, with a number of guests, writers, historians, actors, actresses, 
people that have some kind of a connection to the horror genre. And that really is going to be our primary focus is to try to talk to other people, experts in the genre, uh, people who have some particular insight. Uh, some of the people that uh, I've already approached about being guests in our early episode, they've already said they'd love to do it. One of them is a guy named Tucker Christine, who lives uh, outside of the Philadelphia area. And he is one of the most avid Dracula collectors in the world. He has just about every published edition and adaptation of Dracula. Uh, he also does his own uh, Dracula. It's not a newsletter. It's actually a literary magazine that's going to come out at least four times a year. And I'm already a subscriber on that mm -hmm. list. So we're going to have Tucker on in one of our early programs. He is going to discuss uh, his love of Dracula, uh, both in terms of books, movies, but also in terms of memorabilia. He's got an amazing collection. Uh, so he's one person that we have uh, lined up for one of these early shows. Another guy that we're going to talk to, and he's a very interesting man. I've met him at horror conventions. His name is uh, Harrison Smith. Harrison is a director. Uh, but he has also become a writer, uh, recently came out with uh, uh, his first book, which is called This Time It's Personal. And it's really his own personal reflections of growing up with horror, what he likes about it, how it influenced him in becoming a director. Uh, he has um, put out a number uh, of films. And we'll certainly talk to him about that. We're going to talk to him about his love of horror. He's a well-spoken guy. Uh, he really should be a broadcaster. In fact, he did do a podcast for a while. Uh, and he's very honest. Uh, he's very forthright. He has definite opinions on the industry and who some of the good people are and who some of the people that maybe aren't as good. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I've seen him speak at, at horror conventions, at the Scaricon convention that used to take place. Uh, up here at the uh, uh, casino, not too far from where I live in Cooperstown, New York. He is um, a tremendous source of knowledge. He's not just a contemporary director. He is an historian of horror history, going all the way back to the classics of the 1930s. And I think people will really enjoy hearing from him. So those are just a couple uh, of names that we'll be featuring. Uh, I know that, Tracy, you probably have some thoughts as well. And we're going to work together to try to bring you some of the most interesting guests that'll be featured on this program. So we look forward uh, to doing that. One of the things that Tracy is really going to help us out with is promotion uh, of this program. Uh, I, of course, already have the Ghostly Gallery Facebook page, which really ties in hand in hand with this podcast. But that's something that you're active with as well, Tracy, is social media, particularly Facebook. Promotion is a real strength of yours. That's Tell right. us about some of the ways that you'd like to get the word out about the Ghostly Gallery. Well, one of the really great tools that I do enjoy using, um, believe it or not, Twitter and Instagram are really great ways to help promote the podcast, as well as receive feedback from the fans of the podcast and just fans of any guests and fans of your own to to communicate back and forth. And another avenue I've been exploring is pretty new to me. It's the world of TikTok. So I, I really do believe that there'd be some interesting ways to reach out to as many fans as possible on that platform as well. So you uh, have expertise in making these videos? Little mini snippets, absolutely. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun and it's, it's, gives so much exposure and just the fan interaction. It, it is phenomenal. And you just, you can talk to different people and the message boxes are always open for continuous feedback. Well, that's great. That's uh, one of the ways that we're going to try to get the word out about mm -hmm. this program. So both Tracy and I are very committed uh, to doing that. Tracy, one of the things I wanted to do on this first edition of the Ghostly Gallery is talk about some of our favorite horror films. So I posed the question to you earlier this week on an email mm -hmm. where I asked you to come up with your three favorite horror films of all time. And this is probably something that we can revisit 
because every six months, I think I change what my top three films are. Yes. Uh, what my three films are today are not going to be the same as what we might hear about in six months or a year from now. So we may be getting some different answers to that question. But right now, as of June 2023, what are your three favorite horror films? And if you go in reverse order, start <laughs> with your third favorite horror film of all time? Oh my gosh. I just want to say this was a difficult question. I have a whole page here. Um, so, <laughs> so I, and again, you are absolutely correct. My preferences, they change, but as of like this moment, I am going to say my third all time favorite is a movie from 2019 called Dr. Sleep. And it is a, C a Stephen King story, and it was directed by Mike Flanagan. And it picks up it picks up with the story of Danny Torrance from The Shining. It it was an excellent movie. It was three hours that I was glued to the TV screen. It was a mm -hmm. remarkable movie. And my number two. I have to follow that up with 1980s, The Shining. Um, mm. I just kind of got into those two movies over the last, I'm going to say six to eight months. And that was the first time I actually saw the movie, The Shining. So they just kind of went hand in hand. And my all time favorite that will never change as long as I draw breath is The Exorcist. My all-time favorite movie from 1973. That's that's a great choice. I mean, all three are good. <laughs> I saw Dr. Sleep. Uh, I was actually watching with my family. It was during the early part of the pandemic, mm -hmm. and it was actually Easter Sunday. And we got the film. I think it was on streaming, or maybe we rented it. I'm not exactly sure. And it was a long movie, as you say, about three hours. Yes. It's terrific, though. Uh, I thought it was actually better than The Shining, and that's that's a hard act to follow up. It was a great continuation of the story as they followed, you know, little Danny Torrance into his adult years and his reunion with evil, which culminates at the very expansive and remote hotel in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Uh, just um, a, a terrific uh, film and one of the great examples of modern day horror. And that's something we're going to talk about later. The Shining from 1980 is, is I, I guess, a film that maybe is a little bit polarizing. Some love it. Some hate it. Yes. I think it's, it's a very good film. It's maybe the most famous of all the Stephen King adaptations. It's very creepy, makes you feel very isolated. Tremendous performances from Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, uh, Scatman Crothers is also in that film, too. Uh, so that's that's an excellent choice. And, yeah, The Exorcist is without question in my top 10. What in particular did you find most interesting about The Exorcist? Is a particular scene, a particular performance? I The iconic moment of the Linda Blair scene when she is projectile vomiting on the priest during the exorcism. Yeah. Um, as weird as that is, that scent shivers down my spine. And it really is a moment I will not forget. The whole entire movie, I think about it. It's just, it's an incredible film. The acting was excellent. And for a 1973 movie, it really still holds up really well. It's just, it has that creep and scare factor that it just goes right through you. And it's not kind of like the jump scares that you might see of films today. It is mm -hmm. true old fashioned horror, just scary. <laughs> That scene that you mentioned, I'm glad you brought that up because that is, is such an important scene in the film. Mm -hmm. But there's also an interesting backstory. The priest in the film is played by the late actor Jason Miller, who is a terrific character actor, lived kind of a hard life, died relatively young back, I, I want to say, in the late 1990s. Uh, he's actually the father of current day actor Jason Patrick. Really? Jason Miller is terrific in the movie. And when he is the recipient of that incident from Linda Blair's character, mm -hmm. Reagan McNeil, 
He was not supposed to be hit in the face. He was supposed to be hit in the chest. But somehow the mechanism that fired off, well, it misfired. Oh, gosh. And it hit him in the face. He was not happy about it. And the disgust that you see on him in the film during that scene is real. Uh, he, he was not anticipating that. And the director, William Friedkin, liked his reaction so much he kept it in the movie. So there's a case where an accident actually made an already great scene uh, that much more memorable. But that's, uh, that's a, a, a terrific scene in one of the most important horror movies ever made. It was nominated for an Academy Award. Some of our viewers or listeners, I should say, may not um, remember 1973. They may not have been around in 1973. But for those of us who were, the lines to go into the theater, kind of an indication of what would happen just a couple of years later with Jaws. I mean, The Exorcist, which came out very late in 73, mm -hmm. drew tremendous crowds, tremendous interest. There were incredibly long lines to get in to see that movie. So it wasn't a summer sensation because <laughs> it, was, it was held between Christmas and New Year's, but it was very much a wintertime sensation. And it was one of those early horror films that that really did kind of bust through popular culture in a in a Jaws like kind of way. Oh. Well, those are three great choices. Dr. Sleep, number three, mm -hmm. The Shining, number two, and Tracy's number one choice, uh, The Exorcist. And I like all of them as well. Nice. For me, the top three films, uh, I tend to lean, I guess, toward more vintage films, uh, including a classic from the 1930s but also two films from the 1960s. So I, I go back just a little bit further than The Exorcist. For me, number three on the list is the Alfred Hitchcock film, The Birds, which came out in 1963. It's got a great combination of terror with supernatural overtones, which Hitchcock normally did not get into. Mm -hmm. There's kind of an overriding mystery about why the birds are attacking, and we never really find out exactly why that happens. Also, some beautiful shots, beautiful cinematography. So it's a movie that hits on just about every note. Uh, great performances uh, from uh, really just about everybody. Tippi Hedren plays Melanie Daniels. It was Tippi Hedren's first feature film. You would not have been able to guess that by how good her performance was. And she was really treated horribly by Hitchcock on the set. As a lot of people may know, um, Hedren was the subject of unwanted romantic advances from the director. Mm -hmm. uh, there were times where he literally threw live birds at her to try to get a better shot, a better reaction. And it's really remarkable that Hedren did as well as she did in her feature film debut. Oh, wow. Uh, then you've got uh, Rod Taylor, longtime Australian actor. Uh, he is very good as kind of the heroic Mitch who becomes the love interest to Melanie Daniels, uh, who is played by Tippi Hedren. Uh, Rod Taylor is um, kind of a voice of reason. He is um, living with uh, his mother and his very younger sister, uh, at least part of the time in Bodega Bay. That's where he spends weekends. And of course, uh, Bodega Bay provides some wonderful background shots uh, for uh, the movie. As I mentioned before, this was a departure for Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. uh, most of his films did not involve the supernatural. Even a horror film like Psycho, a great movie, that's really not a supernatural film. Uh, certainly not Rear Window, Frenzy, a later horror movie from 1972, that doesn't involve the supernatural, but clearly there is something of an otherworldly element to the birds in terms of why the birds are acting and sort of gathering and almost setting up a, a situation where they're conducting war against humanity for these unknown reasons. So that's number three on my list. Number two is a movie from 1968. And it's an absolute top-notch film, Rosemary's Baby. Uh, story of Rosemary Woodhouse, the young wife, pregnant for the first time. Her husband struggling to advance his film career. Uh, they move into uh, really a nice old apartment building in New York. Uh, was filmed at the Dakota apartment building, very famous structure in New York City. Great backdrop, kind of a, a, a gothic 
apartment building in many ways. Rosemary's played beautifully by Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, uh, probably better known as a director, but was also a very fine actor. He's very nuanced as her ambitious husband guy who seems to be harboring some kind of a secret. And then there are the aging actors, Sidney Blackmer and Ruth Gordon, who play the seemingly friendly next door neighbors. And I put the emphasis on the word (laughs) seemingly. Ruth Gordon, by the way, was actually named Best Supporting Actress for her part. She is iconic in that role. It's a really interesting movie, Tracy, too, in that the movie is shot in an unusual way. The scenes, some of the scenes are filmed in very long, continuous takes with almost no editing involved. One of those memorable scenes is the phone booth on a New York City sidewalk. Rosemary is nervously placing a call and then impatiently awaiting a response while somebody is is waiting to get into the phone booth. Uh, and really, this style of shooting with those those long, continuous takes kind of adds to the realism of the film. Uh, just mm-hmm. a tremendous movie. Some people say uh, it's a cursed movie. William Castle, who was one of the producers, he believed that was the case. Uh, there have been for years rumors that Sharon Tate... Uh, Uh, who would become a tragic figure only a year later, killed as part of the uh, Manson murders. There have always been rumors that she was actually in the film, made a cameo at a party that was thrown by Rosemary in anticipation of her giving birth to her first child. I've seen the movie a number of times. Mm -hmm. I've, I've looked at that scene. I've never seen any evidence that Sharon Tate was in it, but it's something that is still speculated about uh, to this day. Even though the film is is an old one, you're talking about uh, 55 years ago, it still remains uh, powerful. It's frightening at times, chilling, um, pretty much disturbing from start to finish. I know some younger fans might think it's a little bit on the slower side, but to me, it is an absolute classic. So Rosemary, Rosemary's Baby, number two nice. on my list. And then at number one, I have to go back to the classics. And this is one of the first from 1931, the original version of Frankenstein, a masterpiece uh, directed by the great James Whale. And of course, featuring the immense talents of, at the time, a still unknown Boris Karloff, even though he was a veteran of Hollywood. He'd made a number of films. He was not a particularly well-known name. The film is based very loosely on Mary Shelley's classic novel, uh, tells the story of Dr. Henry Frankenstein. In the book, it was actually Victor Frankenstein, character played by Colin Clive, uh, another tragic figure in Hollywood. Great performance by him. Uh, you have the work of the famed makeup man, Jack Pierce, adopting this unique look for the monster, very different from what Shelley described in her book, uh, Pierce uh, fitted the monster with a flattened head, two bolts protruding from his neck, uh, thick boots, and the ill-fitting suit. And that look is actually still copyrighted by Universal. Mm-hmm. So that's why uh, we have rarely seen anything like it, uh, even in, in Frankenstein films that have been made over the years. Um, Herman Munster from the, uh, from the, the Munsters, yes. which was a Universal production, certainly borrowed from that look, but uh, any film that was not a universal studio film, for example, Hammer films, for the most part, uh, they could not use something that was too close to what Karloff looked like. And to me, that description or that appearance of Karloff in the film, uh, that remains the iconic vision of what Uh, Frankenstein uh, seems to be. One of the great things about Karloff in the movie is uh, his ability to give the character a sense of humanity, uh, even some sadness. He's not just this evil beast that is destroying everything in its path. I mean, he is destroying most everything in his path, but you kind of feel sorry. You feel sympathetic for him at times. Uh, He's not able to communicate, doesn't fully understand what's going on. Uh, doesn't understand uh, that, you know, throwing a young child into the water is is not really a g- great way to play with children. That <laughs> ends up being a very tragic scene yeah. uh, in the film. One of the interesting things about the movie, Karloff's monster does not appear until nearly the 30 minute mark. But then, of course, he's very prominent over the second half of the film. And it was so successful that it prompted numerous sequels, uh, including six movies, 
that carried the name Frankenstein in its title from Universal Studios alone. And the last of those was the movie we mentioned earlier, the 1948 film Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Uh, it's got great gothic imagery throughout, creative storyline. You know, they took uh, some of the, the best parts of Shelley's novel. They worked it into a film that's really only about an hour and 10 minutes long, and it remains a monumental horror classic. So those are my three choices at uh, number three, The Birds, number two, Rosemary's Baby, number one, Frankenstein. Tracy, any thoughts on any of those films? Those are all amazing choices. <clears throat> I do love Rosemary's Baby, and that probably should have been on my list, but I have not seen it in a number of years. But that, again, was one of those movies that sticks with you. Uh, Frankenstein was also excellent. I haven't seen that in probably about a year and a half, but it was also an excellent movie. But your your movie that you mentioned, The Birds, I have yet to see that. And it's been on my watch list for quite a long time because I do enjoy Hitchcock movies. And The Rear Window was like an excellent movie. So I am really excited to make some time to watch The Birds. I've heard so many great things about it. You know, it's, it's an interesting film. I've talked to some critics that say it doesn't hold up that well. Some of the special effects are a little bit on the cheesy side. Uh, it has an ending that's very ambiguous. You know, they never do explain why the birds are acting the way that they do. So, and I think those are legitimate criticisms. But, at the but I still think it's a great movie. It's the way it's shot. Uh, much of it was was shot in outdoor locations, which Hitchcock did not always like to do. I mean, the Bodega Bay schoolhouse scene where the kids are all fleeing from the schoolhouse from this flock of birds that is just attacked is just remarkable. Uh, the performances are excellent. And even though it is maybe an unsatisfying ending to some, it actually is somewhat consistent with the source material it comes from. It's based on the short story by Daphne du Maurier. And her ending's a little bit different. It gives you more of a worldwide perspective on what's going on. It's not just in Northern California that the birds are attacking. This is uh, apparently going on all throughout the country. And as I recall, most of her novel is actually set in England. But there is also an ambiguity in terms of, you know, why these birds are doing this and what's causing this phenomenon. It's a great short story. And, you know, I think the way Du Maurier ends it, the way that Hitchcock ends it, I, I think it's actually somewhat appropriate. So I don't think it detracts all that much for the from the movie. We've got to get you to see that film. Yes. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to we're going to work on that. And I'm sure you're going to have a list of films for me to watch that I haven't seen, because that's the amazing thing about horror. You know, I was going through the uh, the Tubi network last night. Mm -hmm. I love Tubi, all the different horror films that they have. And there's so many movies on there. Thousands yeah. and thousands of horror. Well, not just on on Tubi, but in, in the history of the genre. So many horror films being made today. So many go straight to video and a lot of them are not that good. Mm -hmm. Sure. There are so many horror films out there. There's just no way to consume them all. You, you try to watch as many as you can. You hope that you get lucky and watch good ones and get good recommendations on which films to see. Mm -hmm. But there's always going to be a horror movie that has eluded you. And I'll just give you an example this week. I wrote about it on my Ghostly Gallery Facebook page. It's a movie from 1971 called Fright. And it's believed to be the first horror film where a babysitter is being targeted by this deranged madman. And as it turns out, he's actually kind of seeking revenge against his ex-wife. She's the one that the babysitter is working for. She and her second husband, uh, they, are, uh, they are the ones who have hired this uh, young babysitter played by uh, Susan George, still alive all these years later. So there's kind of an interesting connection there, but it's, it is the, it is believed to be the first kind of babysitter being threatened by a deranged killer type of movie. 
And I had actually, I'd never seen it. And I posted some interesting facts about what I thought were interesting mm-hmm. facts about it. And then I said, I still haven't seen it. It's eluded me. I've never been able to see it. And then that same night I watched Tubi and it pops up right there. And I, I had to watch it that night. So you never know when you're going to see that next film. And I, I thought it was actually quite good. Um, it better than the reviews had indicated. It didn't get very good reviews when it came out. I thought it was a very well done film. It was uh, nicely edited, good acting. Uh, Honor Blackman is in it. Some really accomplished uh, people. Um, there was an interesting backstory between the madman and 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 the mother of the child who is being babysat. I thought it was really a good movie, it, but it's never on television. And up until now, I'd never seen it on streaming. So there's always another horror movie to be seen out there, Tracy. They're just there. Some can be elusive mm-hmm. and the volume is very imposing. But um, when you see a good one that you haven't seen, even though it may be 30 or 40 years old, it's a pretty good feeling, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and that's the wonderful piece of this genre is the the movies they go back like to the beginnings of like the twenties, the thirties and the classics are amazing. And just to take that time and go back and watch movies that you've never seen before, which is what I love. And I love to listen to the history and the historical facts of how these movies came to be. And, and you're right. Like I will go through kind of YouTube and other streaming platforms. And I have come across some movies that I've either never had an opportunity to watch or never even heard of before. And just as an example, the movie Hereditary, I just Mm. randomly came across that. And it was it was a creepy type movie, but it was I do not regret watching it. It was it was a really good movie. And there's been a couple of other ones like that that I've seen, like Audrey Rose from 1977. I, you know, I never saw it back in the day because I was only really young but I saw it maybe about five or six years ago for the first time. And the story about reincarnation, it was, it was an interesting story. Just the movies, you're right. The movies that you can come across randomly are amazing. I mean, there are hits and this is for sure, but you know, you might hear about a movie and you write it down and you go back and try to search it out later. And I am just, I am rocked by some of the things that I've seen lately. Just phenomenal. You mentioned Audrey Rose. I first became aware of that about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was on cable. I'd never heard of it, even though I'm a big Anthony Hopkins fan. Right. It's one of his earlier films, as you said, 1977. It's kind of a different role for him. He plays kind of a strange character in many ways. Uh, he's not uh, he's not a villain, as we've so often you know become used to seeing him in, in the Hannibal Lecter films. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's somewhat sympathetic, but also uh, very much an oddball. And, you know, here we have a film starring Anthony Hopkins, and I'd never heard of it until about 10 years ago. And it's it's really pretty darn good, especially the first half, first two thirds. I didn't really like the finish as much, mm-hmm. but the early part of the movie uh, is very suspenseful. So that's uh That's a great choice for a film that just sort of pops up out of nowhere. Absolutely. Tracy, one of the things I wanted to do as well, in addition to talking about movies, I do want to talk about literature, Mm -hmm. great books, great stories. That is often overlooked in the horror genre. And I think that's an important thing for us to touch upon here. So we're each going to list our top three favorite horror books. And I'm going to let you start. Again, number three on your list. Where do you start with that one? So this was really, really difficult. So I don't have actual book titles, but I have authors. And two of my favorite authors, um, I'll give you number two, is Dean Koontz. He's a wonderful horror author. And my absolute favorite, I have to go back to Stephen King. I have pretty much read... I can't, I can't say I've read all of his work just because his work is so massive, but I've enjoyed his books ever since, you know, elementary school when I first, you know, was able to start mm. reading horror novels, Pet Cemetery, Cujo. Um, I was a big fan of The Stand. And when the miniseries came out back, I 
want to say in maybe the early 90s, it just it sealed the deal for me just to, to read the book and then to see the miniseries on TV. Um, anything by Stephen King is top notch in my books, but Dean, Dean Koontz is, you know, he's a very close second. But interesting enough, like I, I do have a favorite book that I've read and it's kind of a horror genre, but it is, it's called Satan's Harvest and it's a shocking case of demonic possession. And what it is, it's, it's a biography written in 2014. It's a biography of Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are Mm. paranormal investigators. And it just, it describes their whole you know, how they got started in the field and kind of where it ended. It's just, it's a really interesting read. I mm-hmm. I enjoy learning about their history. It, the, again, there's like good things and bad things about Ed and Lorraine Warren, but for the most part, it, it really is a fascinating story. But um, my love for Stephen King, his novels, and then when they actually turn into films or they turn on to tv shows it it's it just brings to light just how talented he is even with creative rights when the directors do kind of modify steven's stories somewhat mm-hmm. it i still really really enjoy them and yeah i'm so satan's yeah. satan's harvest is uh, is non-fiction mm-hmm. historical about the warrens who have been a source of controversy, but also a source of intrigue as well. And then in terms of favorite authors, uh, in terms of of fiction, you like uh, Dean Koontz and Stephen King. Let me begin with Koontz. I have not really read much of his material. I guess maybe one of the reasons his books have not translated as well onto film. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I don't hear about a book in movie form, I don't get to get around to reading the book, which is probably a flaw on my part, Um, but it's just the way my mind works. Is there a particular book or subgenre that you like about Kuntz? Um, You know, I I have just a very vague familiarity with him. Uh, Is there one particular book or one particular aspect of his writing that really attracts you? Um, I don't have a particular book in mind, but it, it's more of, I guess, his the way that he writes. It's It leaves so much to the imagination. Like when he tells a story, it your mind can wander. Like it goes off in so mm-hmm. many different directions. And again, I find that with Stephen King as well. Like he just doesn't say this is the way that it is. You are allowed to take your mind and put it elsewhere and come up with like different theories. It's just like a mystery piece to it as well. It's like mystery. It is thriller and it's, it's horror. It's kind of like a really great combination of all three. It's been a while since I've read one of his novels. So that's a great reminder. I will have to pick one up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a perfect transition to my list because at number three, my three mm-hmm. favorite horror books is one of his. It is Salem's Lot. Oh, yeah. It was actually the second novel that he wrote back in the mid to late 70s. Carrie was the first. Mm-hmm. And he was still, I think, finding his voice and, and still, you know, yet to reach his peak as a horror writer. Uh, but it was a wonderful concept. Basically, what he did, did is he took the character of Dracula. And he made it into a vampire that invades not Europe, but America. And it's not exactly Dracula. It's uh, it's a character named Barlow, uh, whom we don't see for much of the movie. He's talked about by his evil henchman, uh, Straker. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a remarkable book uh, in terms of the sense of dread that you get. As the residents of the town are being picked off by Barlow one by one, and the living residents are shrinking by the moment, the deceased are increasing, and uh, the other vampiric figures are also on the increase as well. It's a really, really well done book. It's, It's kind of like reading Dracula, but setting it in America and written in a more contemporary style, not not written in the, you know, kind of the 19th century, um, verbiage of of a Bram Stoker, and I'm going to get to Stoker a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. 
the only criticism I have of the book, and I guess this is my main criticism of Stephen King, it's pretty long. It's over 400 pages, which for me is a lot. I'm a slow reader. Anything that gets beyond about 250 pages, I find a little bit daunting. It took me a while to get through the book just because of its sheer length. Yes. Uh, but that's a relatively small criticism. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrific book. And of course, it has spawned a couple of adaptations in terms of made-for-TV movies. Mm -hmm. The first one was 1979, uh, the one that was directed by Toby Hooper, which is actually one of my favorite uh, vampire films. So for me, Salem's Lot, number three on the book list. At number two, well, this is the um, this is the selection that matches up with your favorite horror film of all time. For me, the book, The Exorcist, is... Um, just phenomenal. Uh, I actually read it only last year. It took me a long time to get to it. I was not at all disappointed. It it, it came very close to reaching the top of my list. Um, for now, I'm going to put it number two, but that could change. It's uh, it's just a wonderful book written by William Peter Blatty. He writes it in a very readable style. He has a very uncanny ability to create realistic, fast-moving dialogue. And although his writing style is pretty basic and straightforward, it, it doesn't detract from the absolute terror that's created by the demon's possession of a young Reagan McNeil. Uh, it's really no wonder that The Exorcist became this monumental bestseller. And also, after reading parts of it, it's not surprising that some of the graphic language spewed by the demon made the book incredibly controversial in, in some circles back in the early 70s. Now, in today's world, probably wouldn't be that shocking. Early 70s, different story. So right. controversial, but extremely well-written. Just one of those, those page-turning books that keeps you going. Uh, I was able to read it within a couple of weeks, which for me is like a world record. I just don't read that <laughs> fast. Terrific book. Absolute classic of the genre, The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. And then at number one, it is, well, it is the book I hinted at a moment ago, and that is Bram Stoker's classic novel, Dracula, uh, published in 1897. It was a book I had actually first tried to read, Tracy, when I was very young in the 1970s. I, I couldn't get through it. I wasn't ready for it. Right. But about two or three years ago, I went back to it. And uh, I really had a much better appreciation. A couple of things I take away from the book. Number one, Stoker was a phenomenal writer. He had a, a beautiful and lyrical style, kind of typical of great writers in the 1800s. It's not a style we're used to today, but still deserves appreciation. The accounts that he describes of the ghostly, nearly abandoned death ship, the Demeter, landing off the British coast, some of the best horror writing I think in history, uh, just absolutely top of the list. Uh, the descriptions of the dead captain who ties himself to the ship's wheel. And then this large wolf-like dog running off the deck uh, really just sends chills up and down the spine. Only criticism I have of the book, there's long spans of time when Dracula is not a firsthand presence in the story because it's one of these books that's written in this um, uh, epistolary fashion where it's letters, diary entries from all different kinds of writers, all different kinds of perspectives. So there are times when we kind of lose touch with Dracula, but then he does certainly come back at the end. Also reading the book, Tracy, one of the things that I found is in the book, it's, it's long enough and complicated enough that it's really hard to make a true adaptation of Stoker's novel. There have been very good Dracula films over the years, mm -hmm. But there's not really been a film that's been close to, you know, 100 percent representative of Stoker's work. It, it would it would be impossible to make a film like that unless you made it into a miniseries. It would have to be a seven or eight hour film because right. it is such a complicated storyline. Uh, and in, in a book format that works in a film format, you know, you've got to make choices. You've got to condense stories, maybe condense characters. There are a lot of characters in the novel. But for anybody who's a true fan of horror and vampires, uh, I encourage you to make the effort to read the book. Uh, a lot of the vampire myths that we know about to this day began with this book and the Dracula backstory, and it is certainly uh, worth the time. So uh, those are my choices. Um, wow. Salem's Lot, The Exorcist, and 
the original Dracula. Those, You've read Dracula, right? I have not. And now you I'm not. I am super intrigued. And now I need to add that to my read list. So I now have a book suggestion. Thank you. <laughs> but I do want to say The Exorcist. Believe it or not, Bruce, I have not read the book yet. I have difficulties trying to find it. So I am now on a mission because I've heard wonderful things about the book that it is like, if I thought the movie was scary, I have been told that the book is, it is very unnerving and very scary as well. So I am really anxious to read that book and I am going to make it an effort to find that as well as Dracula now. <laughs> yeah. Well, as with you, I love the movie, The Exorcist, mm -hmm. and it's a great film, but the book is even better. Oh, the wow. book is is phenomenal. If you if you do get to read both The Exorcist and Dracula, maybe try to read The Exorcist first because it's shorter. It's, it's a quick read. Mm -hmm. You'll have trouble putting it down. And then you'll maybe need a little more time with Stoker's novel, again, because it's written in an old fashioned style. It's right. much longer. But if you if you can read both of those books at some point, uh, it's well worth it for horror fans. Oh, that's exciting. Tracy, in, in our last few minutes on this inaugural program, I do want to talk a little bit about horror today, because I don't want people to have the impression that we're only going to talk about classic horror, that we're only going to discuss vintage horror. Mm -hmm. I'm very much a fan of the genre today. Uh, I'm not one of those people who thinks that horror was necessarily better in the past. There were some great films from the 30s through the 80s, a uh, tremendously rich time in, in Hollywood for horror films. We saw the growth of horror films during those decades. But I do believe that horror today, uh, when it's done right, is as good, if not better, than anything we've seen. And I want to talk a little bit about some of these horror films. Now, you did mention uh, the uh, Dr. Sleep film, which mm -hmm. is excellent. And it's certainly an example of contemporary horror at a very high level. I think we actually are in kind of a renaissance period for horror. If you look at the last seven to 10 years, seven to 12 years, we have seen some of the best horror productions that have been put out there. Yes. And let's start on the TV side. Maybe the resurgence began with a show like The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm which for its first six or seven seasons, I avidly watched each Sunday. It did lose its fastball in the later years. That's inevitable when a show is on for 10 or 11 years. It did kind of go beyond its expiration point. I'm not really into all the spinoff shows either. But the first five or six years of The Walking Dead, just some of the best horror television, the makeup, the special effects, uh, really first rate. Mm -hmm. uh, another show that doesn't get as much credit as something like The Walking Dead is Bates Motel, which uh, takes the story of Norman Bates, the story that was first written by Robert Block and then adopted by Alfred Hitchcock on the screen. And it takes Norman Bates as a young adult, his teenage years, I think he's still in high school, and kind of follows his path toward becoming this, this killer who uh, essentially takes um, the life of uh, his mother mm -hmm. uh, through recklessness. And then, of course, uh, takes the life of uh, another victim as well, as Hitchcock laid out so famously in the movie. Uh, Vera Farmiga, who's great in the Conjuring films, uh, plays uh, Mrs. Bates. And in many ways, she's really the lead character over Norman. Uh, Vera's just tremendous in that movie or in that, uh, in that uh, TV series, I should mm -hmm. say. Another great TV series that I like was Hannibal, uh, which was you know the adaptation of what we saw on film and in, in books, the Harris novels. Uh, I got to that very late. I only watched that for the first time about three or four years ago. The first two seasons were amazing. The third season lost a little bit, but it seemed to have enough steam for a fourth season. And then somewhat surprisingly, and to the disappointment of many of the mm -hmm. series fans, uh, they canceled the show. And uh, people have been pushing for somebody to extend uh, that version of the Hannibal Lecter story. That's another example of great TV. And then I'll mention one other uh, phenomenal television uh, series. It was on Showtime for a couple of years. And that's Penny Dreadful. I really like that. It was another show that was canceled long before it should have been and was not really given a proper send off. 
Uh, it's a, a TV series that collects the classic monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, interweaves all of them in Victorian England. So the, the monsters actually intersect and interact with each other. Uh, great special effects, great costuming, makeup, uh, tremendous. Just they, they only did about 30 episodes. Mm-hmm. They should have done at least 30 more. So for me, those are really some wonderful television adaptations of horror uh, that uh, that really stand out. How about for you uh, in watching horror TV over the last 10, 12 years? Anything that you really jump out could could include some of the things I've mentioned could be something else. Well, I I I really do enjoy some of the modern horror on TV. So over the last, I'm going to say a couple of years, like maybe five years, I've become a really huge Mike Flanagan fan. And he has created um, the TV miniseries Midnight Mass, The Haunting of Bly Manor, The Haunting of Hill House, and The Midnight Club, which is his most recent. And in post-production, he actually has another miniseries that will be coming out. I believe it might be this coming fall. It's called The Fall of the House of Usher. Um so talented and just the way that he is able to bring those stories to life is truly fascinating i am on the edge of my seat watching them and so they're only approximately an hour a piece maybe 45 minutes so it is a great watch and the episodes the number of episodes are maybe 10 so it's you know not overly intrusive. It's not going to take up a lot of time and you could binge watch it if you wanted to just within a couple of days. And it's a one and done type season. And he starts the story off wonderfully and he wraps it up. Now, unfortunately with the Midnight Club, there was supposed to be a second season, but unfortunately that it didn't get picked up. So he was kind enough to actually finish the story for his fans through Twitter posts and just other publications. So you kind of know where he was headed at the end of the story, which again, as, as a director, writer, like that was awesome for him to bring closure to the midnight club for his fans, because again, it was, it's, he's truly fascinating and I am a huge fan. And so for modern horror for TV, he is my front runner. Absolutely. How good was midnight mass? Oh, Bruce, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you you my perspective. My wife does not like horror. She (laughs) will not watch almost really any of the films or TV series that I like. But she watched Midnight Mass every mm-hmm. episode and I think loved it almost as much as I did. Oh, gosh, That's it was amazing, good. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, incredible. In terms of films, you mentioned um, some of the really great contemporary films, Hereditary, horrific tragedy to a family, uh, demon possession involved in that. You mentioned Dr. Sleep. Mm-hmm. Another great film, uh, a recent incarnation, The Invisible Man, tremendous performance by Elizabeth Moss. Great great adaptation where it takes the original story, puts it in a modern setting, uh, introduces the female character who's being uh, essentially abused by her Mm ex-husband. Moss, as she almost always is, is great in that movie as well. Uh, You know, some of the work of Jordan Peele, his first film is my favorite uh, of the ones that he's done, Get Out, which was um, not only a tremendous film, but also a commentary on race relations nominated for an Academy Award. We know that doesn't happen all that often Mm -hmm. in the world of horror. So uh, in terms of films as well, I think uh, the industry is in good shape. So I think the future looks very promising. The special effects that we see are so much better than anything that's ever been done. The quality of the acting, especially the young and budding acting talent that we see directors uh, now able to acquire for their films, if you will, Uh, Some of the creative stories, yeah, there's uh, an over-reliance on, you know, doing sequels and doing the second and third and fourth versions of the same thing. But when you get into some of the original material, some of those those first versions of films, 
uh, I think it really bodes well for the future of horror, uh, both in television and in film. Well, Tracy, that's going to bring to an end uh, the very first episode of our Ghostly Gallery podcast. We made it through to the finish line. I want to thank you for your uh, contributions, handling all the technical aspects and for your commentary as well. And we look forward to hearing from you in future episodes. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. And thank you so much for the movie recommendations and the book recommendations. Tracy Asteria, my co-host for the Ghostly Gallery. We hope you've enjoyed the first episode of the podcast. We hope many more to come. And please join us the next time for the Ghostly Gallery.